Father, I thank you that we can now uh, get in here and having laughed, and we just all say, where would we be without our Savior? Just in drunken stupors and, um, you know, making foolish decisions in high school and uh, chasing dreams that we think will make us satisfied when we know the only thing that will satisfy us now by your grace is you. And so, Lord, we're still learning. We're still learning the reality of that statement. We need to know more of who Christ is so that we can be the church in our little city, in our little Dallas, uh, that you want us to be. So that, Father, you can save more of those that you love, children that are lost, that are away, that, that are still giving themselves all over to foolish things. Uh, we, we have been brought out of darkness into light, into that marvelous light we are running. And we just sit here and collectively say, where would we be without our Savior? And so, thank you about your great providence and your kindness. You have preserved from us a letter that you wrote to another church so that we might be mutually encouraged and we might learn the things that you want us to know and understand. So teach us from this great book, uh, this book that is just so simple that we love it when we read it knowing no background, but the profundity of it, the, the power of it is even greater when we, uh, when we dig in and get some details and understand context. So teach us now, change our hearts, not that we would leave here with more information, more scholarly in our ability to speak about the book of Philippians, but more Christ-like in our ability to respond to your great love. Amen. Okay, so here we go. Let's, let's take a look at this thing. We, I, I set up the context yesterday. I was talking to uh, Robbie last night. You know, it, it's a bit of a reach. I don't know. It's an argument from silence that that slave girl became a member of that church. We, we don't know for sure. You can make a real good case. Lydia, obviously, her home became the church. Uh, the jailer undoubtedly and his family got in, and and, and I, I can't say, you know, categorically that that little slave girl, you know, was redeemed and was brought in. Um, you can read into it, you can assume it. Um, almost everybody that we see in the scripture that was delivered in that way um, did sit at the feet of Christ, clothed in their right mind, and we can make a case that those guys that had owned her and abused her and cared for her only because she was some source of profit to them, once she was not a profit but really a liability because they had to feed that mouth without getting income from it, that they were glad to let her go. But, you know, look, here's the point. Paul remembered that girl when he wrote that letter to Philippians. We can say that. He remembered that story. It's not a kind of story you'd forget. And so what's really helpful is when you now think of this letter, I, I think one of the things I have been guilty of over my life is when I read Ephesians, when I read Colossians, when I read Thessalonians, when I read Philippians, when I read Romans, I always read them like I was writing a letter to a church you know, pick your favorite region in the country or, or in the world that I really didn't know anybody, but it was just a letter to those folks in Shanghai, okay, and the church in Shanghai. And then I wrote these great platitudes, these high-minded thoughts that anybody could read and be encouraged by. Now, certainly, we can all write that way, but what really helps us is when you read this with... with, with um, with relationship in mind, that Paul thought about Lydia. He thought about the people he lived with in her house. He knew that jailer. He smelled, you know, every one of our homes has those smells, and he, he knew that guy. He knew what he dressed like and looked like and felt like. He, he had been around that little slave girl. She's a part of that community. I mean, these were people that he knew their life story. He knew where they came from. He knew what their struggles were. He cared for them, and he loved them. And they're just like us. And so think about, you know, if you were plucked out right now. Uh, Brian, I don't need a chance to say hi to you yet, man, but welcome back. You guys have been gone for five years. I bumped into your wife in the hall and go, what in the world? You know? Because you guys were up here five years, six years ago, weren't you with us? And then, and then uh, they've been in New York for five years. But what if while they were in New York, they were here in the early days, you know? 
And uh, man, Brian, I won't put words in your mouth, but I mean, you guys, you trusted Christ. Don't, didn't you guys come to know the Lord here? You guys were one of our very first baptisms. We need to hear that story early on. I mean, I remember just some of the interactions foggy in my memory, which is crazy. But I remember this, the life change that happened around that family. And then they went to New York and they got assimilated up there and they're back. And they're here with us. But let's just say they went and they were here and they loved us. And they wrote a letter. They wouldn't just write a letter to a broad group of people. They were folks they knew and cared about. And so when Paul says in, in verse 6, this good work which he began in you, Lydia, Jailer, that, 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 that life of just mundane work-a-day world that, that serves Caesar, that just wants to become sergeant one day, that you've been now redeemed for so much more. This thing that Christ began in you, He is going to bring it about to completion. You guys are going to be difference makers in this world. You're not just going to have fire insurance. You're not just going to have a said faith. You're going to have a saving faith. Little girl, you're not going to grow up hating men because they abused you. You're not going to grow up with anger issues and resentment issues. But I want, I want Christ to fully teach you to forgive. And I want you to get over the way that you were abused and drugged and manipulated as a kid. And I believe that Christ is going to fully heal you and transform you. And He's going to complete this good work which He began in you. You know, I think we read this sometimes like it's just a broad statement, but He's got specific folks in mind. Folks that He cares about and things that He loves. Now let me just tell you just a little bit more background as we chew through chapter 1 and the very first part. I've got, got to get through a sizable part of chapter 2 today. But let me tell you a little bit about this. When you read... This is Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in the church in Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. This is the very first um, pastoral epistle that mentions overseers and deacons. The one subsequently after this mentioned, appoint elders and deacons everywhere you go. Just so you know, elders and deacons. Elders are guys that are primarily responsible for the internal working and the health of the church. They're the ones that give attention to prayer, um, to the study of the, the, the apostles' teaching, to make sure that the church is staying on course and about what it's about. And the deacons are the leadership that are really um, responsible for the, the external service and, and the outworking of that internal transformation. Uh, people ask us every now and then, this came up again, you know, where are the deacons at Watermark? In America, sadly, um, there, there's often what's called a deacon board. And so they get together, they have meetings and they are committees and all this different stuff. But, but we don't see in scripture a deacon board. We just see deacons and deaconesses. And so just so you know, if you are leading in an area of ministry, you have been vetted. We are constantly uh, looking to see if the, if the qualifications that are mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are, are true of who you are. Every now and then we have to ask somebody to step back a little bit from leadership because we don't think that them leading in that particular area, area um, would be a blessing to others. It might cause confusion to the working of Christ. But people say, who are the deacons at Watermark? Here's our answer. Anybody who is in an area of leadership or influence in doing the work and the ministry of the gospel. You are a deacon or a deaconess. Now, we don't have deacon meetings, okay? We gather together and encourage each other, but we're always meeting with deacons. Anytime you meet with one another, you're meeting with other deacons. But you're not a committee that's going through various functions. You're a leadership team that is caring for the, the one place the deacons are really spelled out in Scripture is in Acts chapter 6, where men full of the Spirit are appointed to basically make sure that, that they were sharing the food that supply that they had well uh, with the Hellenistic Jews. And, uh, excuse me, Hellenistic widows and the uh, Jewish widows because there was some discussion that, that there was favoritism being played out and that the food wasn't being distributed well. And so rather than the elders who were supposed to make sure the church was growing in Christ-likeness, managing the distribution of food, managing uh, greeting, managing child care, managing whatever it might be, 
they appointed men full of the Spirit, women full of the Spirit, to care, not women in that section, but other places, to care for that specific deed. But they were spiritual men, and later women, that did the work of ministry. And so what Paul is saying, and what happens is, is whenever there's somebody that steps out a little bit, and what God was doing is the apostles, as ministry marched on, were dying, they were being killed, they were being imprisoned, they were being removed from the apostolic ministry of being overseers of the church, which God said, I want you to be the foundation to which the church is built. And so all that's going on here is now Paul is saying, look, I'm gone. And, and now that I'm gone, you need to start to look, not to me in Rome, but you need to start to look to the men in your area and look up to them and know that God's ministry is going to come to you and through you, through these individual leaders, which is what we always have said here at Watermark. In fact, we do a couple of things. We even say that, that, that in your own community group, you guys really play the role of elder with one another. And your, your first and primary responsibility with each other is to shepherd the flock of God among you. And then, and then we're always there to make sure that we're gathering together as a community of churches and holding each other accountable and making sure we're all attending the same thing and paying attention to the same thing. But it's interesting, this is the first letter where he says, I want to make sure that the overseers and the deacons in this area, are, are that you look up to them and that you acknowledge and honor them the way you would me because they are the leadership that God gave you. And then after this letter, First and Second Timothy, um, Titus, Paul says, make sure you appoint elders because the apostolic leadership is gone. And so, just a kind of interesting little note right there. But bottom line, this little second verse, grace to you and peace to God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a very typical Pauline greeting. And if you read almost all of his different little books, it all looks the same. Now, why do I say that? Because I, I could teach on that for a while, but I'm not going to because there's so much other rich stuff. But, but verses 1 and 2 are very typical. Paul doesn't mention here uh, that he's an apostle. Why? Because this letter is unique. This is the only pastoral epistle that was written to a church that does not have some major correction in it. It doesn't have any real concern about what's going on at Philippi. There is one little reference that we'll find out a little bit later, an encouragement for them to live in harmony and unity. Because every church needs that encouragement. Isn't that interesting? We all need to remember, hey, just keep loving each other. I know you guys are crazy. Teacher throwing up in tattoo wearing, you know, butt branding, NASCAR naming, crazy people. All right? So it's going to be hard to love each other. But hang in there. Hang in there. And, uh, and love one another and have harmony exist among you because it's so easy to drift away from this thing. But what's, what's interesting about Philippi is it's the, it's a very normal introduction. But then from verses 3 down through 11, there is nothing like it in the scriptures. And I want to tell you, there's a major application here. This, 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 as I, I sat and I thought about this, I'm going to tell you something that, that I want to share with you guys. In verses 3 through 11, I want you just to read this, okay, with me. I thank my God in every remembrance of you. I'm always offering prayer for you with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, I know that God is going to continue working in you and perfect until the day of Christ Jesus. It's only right for me to feel this way about you. Because I have you in my heart since both my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are all partakers of grace with me. For God's my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, I pray this way for you, that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you might approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I love you, Philippi. I added, obviously, at the end. 
There is no other section in Scripture written to a church where there is such a personal outpouring of affection. Now, what he often does is he reminds the churches of God's great love for them. You know, you look at Ephesians, and he has, it's the longest sentence in your New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It's one continual run-on about God's love for the church at Ephesus. But, but here, in 3 through uh, 11, you've got a run-on with Paul just pouring out his heart for this little church. And he said, I want you to be everything God wants you to be, and I love you. Now, I thought to myself, so what was it about Philippi that, that just really had won a spot in Paul's heart? This you could easily make a case, was Paul's Paul's favorite church that he planted. And so I thought, okay, what makes somebody, Paul, goodness sake, the guy that God used to write most of the New Testament, I mean, what made John the disciple whom Jesus loved, other than that he wrote that himself, okay? So, um, and you know what, someone asked me that one time, how could John, why, why why did Jesus play favorites with John? You know what, I have a sense that Jesus is one of those guys that everybody thought he was their best friend. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, John was just saying, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I think it's more a statement of his incredible love um, for, for what Christ had done for him, the humility of John. There's also, though, a, a major argument you know, in history that John was the youngest guy that, that, that Jesus called to follow him in that inner circle of 12. And so Jesus just really cared for him in a unique and special way. He was clearly seated next to Christ at that moment uh, when Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter, who was clearly the leader of the group, all right, the big, strong, brawny fisherman, he goes, I, I'm not even sure I can get this out of Jesus. John, you can. And so there, there was something in there, I'm sure, about that, that, that there was uh, an affection that, that Christ had. We even know that within the 12, there was the three. Within the three, there was the one, right? Peter, Andrew, and John were the guys that he always kind of pulled off separately. And the other nine were left at times as he trained and, and raised them up. But I, I think everybody was one of those folks that felt like, man, Jesus, he just loves me. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. I think every church probably felt like we're, we're, we're the apple of Paul's eye. You know, I mean, I, I know I do. I feel like, man, God is just pouring out his spirit on my life and on watermark in a way that's just really, really unusual. But there is something about Philippi. Because Paul did not write anything like this. To Ephesus, he says, let me tell you about God's great love. He foreknew you. He, you know, he predestined you. He called you. The kind intention of his will was made clear to you. But here, he just says, I love you. I thank God always for you. And so, here's what I want you to know about, about them. Uh, we, we know that the church at Philippi was really largely poor. Now, now, we know Lydia was fairly well off, right? But the church as a whole, and, and um, in 2 Corinthians, if you can put 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, you can probably throw it up there faster than they can turn to it. So let me just read 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2 for you as soon as it pops up there. Uh, another place I want to let you know about Philippi is that not only were they really fairly poor, but they underwent some persecution. Okay, and, uh, and I'll show you. So here's what 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, and why don't you load uh, 2 Thessalonians, um, no, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 2 for me in a second. All right, but now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. All right, we know that this church in Philippi, he's using to exhort the church in Corinth, supported Paul in a way that no other church did. He, they had sent a couple of gifts as soon as he left Philippi to chase after Paul and say, you go do somewhere else what you did here. 
We, we see that in Philippians chapter 4. And then we know that the, the, the occasion of the writing of this letter was that they had just sent another gift to one of the leaders in the church to come to Paul to give him more provision while he was in house arrest in Rome. And so they were largely poor, but they were incredibly generous. There's no other church in all of Paul's ministry that followed him with support and love and earthly provision like Philippi. It was a generous people, even in their poverty. Okay? Which probably says something. That means that Lydia, you know, who had it going on, probably right away said, okay, I'm going to care for these folks. Paul's going to teach me how to love. And she gave in a way, and they cared for the city in a way, and gave to Paul's provision and ministry in a way that largely they weren't living in comfort, but they kept finding ways to be liberal, even in the midst of the great poverty and affliction. Uh, there were a church that was afflicted. There was persecution there. Look at Second Thessalonians, the First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. So we know that when Paul left Philippi, one of the places he went is to Thessalonica, and he was just reminding them that he suffered in Thessalonica. Why? Remember, there was that um, stirring up after that slave girl. Uh, was no longer useful to those that had her in, in, in prison. And so, I mean, a, a, as a um, fortune teller for them. And Paul got beaten and treated uh, inappropriately. So that church, being identified with Paul, continued to suffer different persecutions as they went along. And Paul said, man, not only did you believe what I came to share, you suffered with me and continue to suffer with me. So even though there weren't a lot of Jews there, there was from the very beginning an antagonism towards this new sect, as it was called. And they did not shrink back. And so, here, here's two things that I think really do cement our hearts to people. One, when you just go through war together, right? You know, when you suffer together, when you endure together, when you survive together, when you go through hardship together, it just knits your heart to somebody. Always. And uh, secondly, when somebody just says, look man, what's mine is yours. And they care for you, and they love you, and you're generous. Which, by the way, This is what Christ calls every church to be, right? Exceedingly generous people. He calls us to be individuals that suffer hardship for the cause of Christ, that treat ourselves as servants. And I'm going to show you where Christ just did this. And what we look at when we look at what the persecutions that Christ went through to redeem us, we look what Christ gave, who though he was rich became poor for our sake. We go, we're the church that Jesus loves. And it knits our heart to him. Okay, this church, like no other, endured persecutions with Paul, and it was generous. Uh, one of my favorite little verses right here, and by the way, I, I did a deal on a series called This is the Life, and, and one, of, um, one of them was on the topic of generosity. And as I was just meditating on what it was about Philippi that he loved, Proverbs 19.6 says this, Many seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him. Who gives gifts? I mean, the, the fact is, is that generous people are our favorite people to be around. I, I love it. You know, I mean, when you're walking through downtown and you, you know, you're sitting there with somebody and you're hanging out talking and you just walk into Lara's or wherever the candy store is, you're going to walk in and you buy a candy apple with penis on it and they go, "I got this." Just put your five bucks away. I got. You just go, man. I want to walk into more candy shops with that guy. <laughs> All right. Or when when it when it becomes exceedingly more than that. There are some people in my life that I just sit there and I just marvel. I just go, oh my gosh. I in fact sent an email to a guy today uh, who a while back had done something for me. This morning I was up and um, something had come up 
to where he was asking for counsel on something, and I was just reminded of something that he had done before, and he was asking for counsel on whether or not he should be generous to somebody, in effect. And my response was, let me just tell you how just I continually am awed at your generosity. And I remember when this, this, and this happened with my family, and you did this for us. And I just pray God continues to prosper you and bless you, you know? And it involved helping out with a car a long time ago and things like that. But I just, I just, just, you love to be around generous people. That's what was going on in Philippi. So let's take a look now. Let's just walk ourselves through this and take a little bit of a look. This, this is not at all typical affection, 3 through 11, okay? Uh, it's an outpouring of love and a celebration of who they are. Um, in verse 6, again, I've already kind of commented on this. When he says, I'm confident that he began a good work and you will perfect it until day, he's just saying, don't grow weary. God's at work in your life. He's going to accomplish the full intention of salvation for you, Lydia. He had more in mind than just helping you understand that there's more in being a God-fearer. He wanted you to be a Christ follower. Little girl, he wanted to do more than have you not be in bondage to them. He wanted you to be full in your ability to love and call other people out of the bondage that they're in. And so he had specific folks in mind. Look down at verse 8. For God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. You go, are you kidding me? All the affection of Christ Jesus. See, that's one of those things that just rolls off your tongue. But let's just think about all the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is where I'm going to knock off what if you could distill down what ultimately is the kind of person that God loves and God adores and God proclaims. Right here you get it. Okay? When you think about all the affection of Christ Jesus, that is a mouthful. It's like when we get married as guys, we say, I'm going to love you as Christ loves the church. Are you kidding me? Let's throw out a few words, okay, uh, and, and what that ideal means. When Paul says that, okay, I mean, the words like sacrificial, unconditional, uh, one who always initiates, one who doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, one who is, extends forgiveness and compassion and concern, who though you're rich will come poor for them. Just, just, just flip over to your chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, because this is really... Uh, exactly what Paul said when he said when I love you with all the affection of Christ I love you this way I love you so much that I want to ever do anything from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind I'm going to always regard you as more important than myself I'm not going to merely look out for my own personal interest but wherever I am whatever hardship I'm experiencing I'm going to look out for you I'm going to have in myself the same attitude which is in Christ Jesus which if you want to know what it looks like to the affection of Christ Jesus this is it even though he exists in the form of God he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I love you like that. If I was God, I'd become a man. If I was a king, I'd become a servant. If I was free, I'd become a slave. If I was healthy, I'd die for you. And you go, whoa. That's all the affection of the love of Christ. And, and when he says that, you know, Paul understood that. I mean, you know, he knew the Lord. He wrote the doctrinal books that we kind of like go by. And it's not just one of those little statements. I mean, it rolls off the tongue, but that is the rub. That is the thing that God says, this is who you should be. And so really for all of us, what Paul wants to do is to grow in all of us that kind of affection. Okay, and, and, and a little bit later he's going to spell this out. He's going to remind them, you now become like me, and I'm becoming like Christ. It's what he said into the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. This church knew that Paul loved them. And what he's saying is, don't just sit and go around, can you believe how great a guy Paul is? No. Sit around and go, how can we learn to love like that? 
And the answer is coming right here. So, when you love somebody with all the affection of Christ Jesus, what do you do for them? You do verses 9 through 11. You live to see Christ manifest in their life. And so Paul says, I thank my God always. I pray for you. Um, and this is what I pray. This is how you pray for somebody that you love with all the affection of Christ. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Okay, that word discernment is huge. Because discernment means just basically discriminative behavior. Somebody who can make good judgments, who can apply the principles of wisdom. See, wisdom is not knowledge. And if you read the Proverbs, I love the Proverbs. If there's any book that I do default to a lot, it's Proverbs. Proverbs, though, are principles of truth. You cannot always go to Proverbs and find things that you like or make sense. Uh, Some fact, Proverbs, you're like, really? I don't like that. God's just saying, that's just the way it is. And sometimes there are Proverbs that I can show you that are principles that are true, that are opposite sides of the same coin. And you go, well, how can that be true if that's true? Or how can I do this if I'm supposed to do that? Uh, just the easiest and most classic example is uh, Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what do you do? You've got to be a person who's got real wisdom. In other words, a real discerning and wise person knows which principles of truth to pick up, what tool to use that are from God to apply to that specific circumstance. And so what he says, I hope you've got real knowledge, not the knowledge of this world, not the fleeting knowledge of man, but the real knowledge that there is a God, he does exist, he created the world, he is going to call the world into account, he does love humanity, he entered into the world as a man to die for humankind in order that they might become rich through his provision. And that there is going to be an accounting. There is going to be judgment. That's real knowledge. And I pray you would live your life discriminately based on that truth. And that you would apply appropriate wisdom to every circumstance based on that truth. But you kind of go, okay, well, so God loves the world. So how do I treat this person that's pommeling that guy in the face? What's Christ do to a situation like that? How do I treat this woman that's following us around and destroying our ministry of the gospel? How do I treat this guy that is so lost and scoffs at me and mocks God, thinks I'm an idiot for serving this Jesus who watches over me. How do you treat those people? And Paul's saying, it takes real wisdom to know, how do I treat this terrorist right now? What's it look like to turn the other cheek in this moment? What's it look like to respond to that fool right now? Is this a time that I should keep my mouth shut? Or is this a time I should speak up? Paul's saying, I pray that you get so close to God that you know the right thing to do in every circumstance. And one of the things you watch when you read through the gospel is Jesus knew the right thing to do in every circumstance. And you just are constantly amazed. Like, how do, you, how do you pull that off? He knew when to flip tables. And he knew when to disappear from crowds. He knew when to speak up for those that were suffering. And he knew when to stand silent before those that were falsely persecuting him. How? Because he had real knowledge and he had real wisdom. And that doesn't come overnight. And Paul's saying, I pray that you would learn more of Christ. You would be attention so that you might learn. This is discernment. This is discernment filled out. Verse 10. You might approve the things that are excellent. You would know how to make wise choices in every circumstance. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to his commandments, the scripture says. We had a situation recently where one of my little girls made a decision. She tried to call Alex. She tried to call me. Neither of us answered the phone. And she went ahead and she did something that you know, led to some sorrow in her life. And we just looked back at her. We just said, what, what were you thinking? Well, I tried to call you. I go, so what would we have said had we answered the phone? You would have said, definitely don't do it. Exactly. Exactly. 
So you already knew. Why'd you call us? Hoping that we wouldn't answer so you could be free to be a fool? I go, no, listen. And I took her back to a veggie tale that we watched when we were kids. And I said, do you remember? It was the one, uh, it's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's the kids that are over there, and King Nebuchadnezzar tells them they can all eat whatever candy they want, as much candy as they want all day long, and all the kids go chocolate, all the chocolate they can eat. They work in a candy factory, I think, in that right, in that veggie tale, and they just start eating like crazy, except for three guys. They don't eat the candy. Why? Because there was a song that their mom taught them when they were little. Okay? Can you sing the song? I know you know the song, Rob. What's it go like? It, it's, it's a... <laughs> It's a, does anybody know it? Anybody watching that VeggieTales right now? It's, it's, it's out there. And anyway, my little girl who's got a very uh, musical memory like that, she knew exactly what song I was talking about. Who's got it? What is it? Go ahead, Haley. Start it. Just get it started. We'll all know it. It is what made me love her, by the way. I know it. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Don't giggle away your chance with the talking heads here. Come on. What is it? No, that's what they did when they were sick. There's a song, though, that was, that was a song. Oh, you got it. What is it, Jen? What is it? There you go. All right, say those words again. All right, th- what is it again? Say the words. Think of me every day. Hold tight to what I say. Then I'll be close to you even when far away. Okay? Way to go, Jen Coates. Oh, sorry. Jen Griffin. Sorry. It's only been six years. All right. So, so, eight. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, so, so here's the gig, is that that song, so don't you remember that song? That's why we teach you these things. That's why we taught you to reason that way, that you might have discernment. And then I just said, look, you're going to be in college one time. Guys are going to say, drink this. Guys are going to say, if you love me, you'll do this. And what are you going to do? Say, well, let me just call my parents and see if it's okay to do this. Or are you going to have that little voice in your head that we've taught you to walk in the way of the Lord? The reason we want you to walk in the way of the Lord is we're not trying to steal fun from you. It's because we want to set you free from the bondage that your impulsive decisions, that you think there's life in these things, they don't make sense. And it wasn't a huge deal, but it was a great teaching opportunity. And I just said, do you remember why we, we talked about that as a vegetable? That's why we're building it unto you. Train up a child in the way that he should, he should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. What Paul's saying is, I tried when I was with you to teach you in the way that you should live so that when I'm in prison in Rome and I'm nowhere near you in Philippi, the glory of Christ can still reign. And so every opportunity you get, you build into them and you pray for them. And you wake up and you say, oh Lord, every good thing that I put into my kids this morning, may it manifest itself. Every good thing that I put into the church at Watermark, may they love each other in that community group that way tonight when I'm not going to be there. May they endure with one another. May they be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with one another. May they, with gentleness and humility and, and forbearance, love one another. Because they've been trained that that's the way to do it. Because I've learned from Christ that way. And I've reminded them of that way. So that when I'm not there in every little community all around this city, great things are happening. May they, when they have an opportunity with, with individuals that they go to eat with, may they share Christ with them because they've heard stories of how I shared Christ. Or, or I've learned from them. They're not with me, but they've spurred me on to care for the orphan and the widow. And may I remember the way they built into my life so that when they're not there, the orphan and the widow would still be cared for. That's what Paul's praying for. If you love somebody with all the affection of Christ, that's what you do. You just say, may you grow, and then you prevail with them every chance you get to love them that way. So that you might approve the things that are excellent, that you might be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That's the goal. See, we're not just going to limp to grace. We're going to run to glory. 
And, and we're all going to grow at different rates. But the goal here is that we would be, and you're going to see it show up in uh, verses 14 and 15. Just flip over to verses 14 and 15. You see where Paul comes back to these ideas. He reminds them of, uh, of, of who they are. This is what he says in verses 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15 specifically. So that you might prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That is a verse that we memorized as a family coming up to Colorado, I think, two years ago. And just exhorting my kids and reminding our kids, this is who you are. This is the calling. You're not just saved. You are supposed to be these lights in a dark and perverse world. And you've got to go. You've got to grow. This is how you're going to get there. Having been filled, this is, this is the means, now this is key. I want you to be that, but this is how. Because you've been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What Paul's saying is don't try and do this on your own. Don't consult your jailer personality. Don't go back to your entrepreneurial strengths. Certainly don't go back to your drug-induced coping strategies. The only way you're going to be this person is if you learn to be guided by the spirit that you receive when you trusted Jesus Christ. See, when, you, when you're filled with the fruit of righteousness, that is a synonym for you when you're filled with the Spirit, which is to say that you are filled with the Spirit of truth, which is that you're filled with the Spirit of Christ, which is to say that you would bear what Christ's Spirit bears when He is there. One of the things that for years, I misread Galatians 5.22 where it says, for the fruits of the Spirit are. But that's not what it says. It says the fruit, it's singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love, it is joy, it's patience. Kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Okay? It's, it's, it's nine things, and if any of those nine things is not there in fullness and completeness, then you can be sure that whatever guiding you in that moment is not the Spirit of Christ. So one of the ways, and by the way, I tell people, don't pray for patience. It's, it's just, you mean, okay, pray for patience. But you don't have to. You should just say, Christ, may your Spirit guide me. How would the Spirit of wisdom and all knowledge and discernment act in this moment? If the Spirit of God is there, it'll be patient. It'll be loving. It'll be good. It'll be faithful. It'll be marked by self-control. Okay? And, and, you know, my wife and I were talking about the way we were interacting with our kids when they were in the middle of doing foolish things. And one of the ways that I knew I could not defend myself about the way I responded was because I did it impulsively. I did what I did very impulsively. Okay, Jesus, did Jesus ever talk sternly? You bet he did. Did Jesus ever speak when he was not completely in control of himself? No. So there's nothing wrong with speaking sternly. But it is a sternness that is controlled by righteousness and truth. And so when I went back, I went, you know what, that was just, that was really, that was reflex. That was just innate. That was Todd. That was not, I cannot say that the Spirit of God spoke sternly there. Okay? And... um, and so what Paul's saying is, you want to know how you can do this? It's going to be through a yieldedness. It's going to be to lean not on your own understanding. It's going to be in all your ways acknowledge Him. It's going to be before I do this, am I sure that this is informed by the Spirit of God and the principles of wisdom? This is by why the way it tells you to discipline your child with a rod, I really believe. Okay? Because most of us don't carry around. We're not, you know, uh, Colonel Clink. We don't have a little horse whip right there under our shoulder. And so, uh, you know, what he says is when you discipline your child with a rod, you've got to go, okay, look. I got to go get something, and I'll be right back. And while you go to get something, 
All right? You come to your senses. It's, 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 it's the biblical way of saying count to ten before you're an idiot and act out of self-control. Out of a lack of self-control is what I mean. And so you get, and when I do that with my kids, you know, um, it always hurts my kids more. I could hit them 90% less with a backhand than I could when they were younger with a form of discipline, and it did not hurt their spirit the same way. I would hit them harder and there'd be a sting, but it wouldn't break our relationship the way my backhand and cut it out for a moment did and melt their spirit. Because there wasn't love, it wasn't informed by that. When Christ disciplines you, it hurts, doesn't it? Anybody here been disciplined by Jesus? It hurts. I mean, he's, he's got me a few times, rightly so. But it was always with, I really care about you. This isn't just me getting angry and impatient, firing the lightning bolt like Zeus. I love you. And so, anyway, what Paul is saying to the church is, look, you want to know how you're going to be all these things I just encourage you to? You're going to be spirit-surrendered people. Gang, this is the Christian life. Okay, and by the way, guess what? This is the Christian life boiled down. What Paul is saying, it always comes down to three things. Remember what I said? It's a radical commitment to one another in love. It's a, it's a fervent passion to be conformed into the, the, the likeness and nature of Christ. And it is a sense of peace that passes all understanding and joy in every circumstances. So I want to boil that down to you in three words. Okay? Here, here's what a mature Christian is. He is loving. He, he, he loves. Okay? And not the way the world defines love. The way God defines love. It is self sacrificing, committed, grace-informed love. It is not provoked, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, doesn't seek its own, doesn't act unbecomingly, never rejoices in unrighteousness, always rejoices in the truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I jumped over the very first part there, patient, kind, does not boast, is not arrogant, is not jealous. Okay, but my point is, is that you are loving, and you've got to ask yourself, does my community go, this, this guy, this guy loves Secondly, in holiness. Okay? You are a set-apart person. The way you do your life, people look at you and just go, you are a shining light in a dark and perverse world. The way you handle conflict, the way you shepherd your kids, the way you go through hunger, the way you go through prosperity, you are different. You just know what to do in every circumstance in a way that if all the world was like you, this would be a better world. That's what you'd say about Jesus. You don't find anybody who doesn't like Jesus. Okay? And you just go, if the world was full of Jesus, you know, fat chance. But if it was, what a great world it would be. And then the third one is courage. I'm going I'm to define it as courage. Courage to go into every moment knowing that God's radically in charge, which leads to joy. Okay? That, that's the one word. I think, I think Christ-informed people, mature believers, are courageous. And because you're courageous, you know that if God is for you, who can be against you? It doesn't matter if you're in jail, if you're in plenty, if you're in want, if your cancer's there, or if it's in remission. Okay, if the world loves you and celebrates you, if the world hates you, you keep pressing on. Okay, and you've got a sense of peace. And you're going to find this right now in Paul. Paul is these things. You're going to find in chapter 3, the whole chapter is about becoming more holy. You're going to find chapter 4 is him saying, I'm courageous and nothing bothers me. You're going to find it show up right now in Philippians 1. And you're going to find out that this letter is just about his love. I care for you and my whole life is about building into you. And so here's what I want to do. Stop right now. Major question of application. If that's what a mature Christian is, somebody whose life is radically defined by the one and others of Scripture, how mature are you? 
if, if a mature Christian is somebody that everywhere you go, people go, you're different. You dress different. You talk different. You listen different. You work differently when no one's watching. You use your discretionary time differently. You drive your car differently. You shepherd your children differently. You spend your money differently. Okay? You don't do stuff just because you can. You are holy. The word holy means set apart, but not like we're going to build a little you know, convent over here where the rest of the world's away from us. It's always holy. The word means set apart, but it's holy vertically. You're right there with everybody else, but your life is exactly what verse 15 in Philippians says. Shining lights. There's darkness and there's you. How mature are you? Are people coming up to you and saying to you, man, hey, can, can I ask you, man, I, I'm just, I just watched the way you just, how did you know to, your life, can you explain to me? Does that happen to you a lot? Because if, if it's not, let's let maturity take its course. And then thirdly, courageous. All right? Do you worry a lot? Are you discouraged a lot? Do you feel like God's forgotten you a lot? Do you not speak the gospel truth a lot because you're afraid it might cost you a friendship, might cost you some level of prosperity? Because if so, you're not maturing. Okay, so those three words, love, holiness, and courage, are what marks a mature believer. And that's what this little book's about. This church that I love, I want you to love. I want you to be holy, and I want you to be courageous, just like me. Just like Jesus. So watch this in verse 12. So now he's going to go on. He's going to say, now I want you, brethren, I want you, brethren, to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. It's all good. God's always at work, even in the dark stuff. Romans 8, 32 and 30 through 39. Would you throw that there for me? Romans 8, 32 through 39. You know, what, what, what he's going to do right here, and I love this, what, what, he's, what we've already decided is that the gospel does bring together a very diverse group of people and makes them love one another. It forms new communities that would not exist apart from the radical truth of the gospel. Lydia, crazy woman, and uh, the jailer, and all the other folks in Philippi. There's something new happening. These people that are wildly different are all brought together in Christ. And the gospel brings that new community together. But watch this. Is the gospel good enough, though, to help me just in my general life circumstances? Now Paul's going to answer that. Yes, it is. But look, what Paul's saying is, look, man, I know who God is, and he's always for me. The one that did not spare his own son for me, will he not also with him freely give me all things? Here's the argument of Paul. If God loves me enough to die for me, what's he not going to do? Right? I mean, it's kind of like if I went into that, that store and I, I didn't buy you just a candy apple. I bought you Lara's. And then you go, well, can I have a candy apple? I go, I bought you the whole store. Of course I'll give you a candy apple. It's yours. Everything I've got, I mean, every provision. So he said, if Jesus died for me, isn't he going to care how I live and be for me? He's never going to forget me. And he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? It's Christ Jesus. He's the one who died. Yes, rather, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who can separate me from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep being led to slaughter. This is what Paul's writing. Just like Jesus did this for us, we do that for the world. But in all these things, it doesn't matter what we're going through. We are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Roman praetorian guards imprisonment, false accusation, folks that play the race card, nothing can separate me from God's sovereign 
rule in my life. Cancer, divorce, abandonment, abuse by a dad, nothing. God's at work, and I'm going to be courageous. I'm not going to shrink back. I'm not going to feel like I'm forgotten. And so this is what Paul's saying right here in verse 12. I want you to know the gospel helps me in jail. It doesn't just help us become friends. It provides for me an everlasting transformation. And so I'm good. Look what he's going to go on to say right here, verse 13. So that in my imprisonment, the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Paul said, look, don't, don't be upset that I've somehow slipped out of God's will or he's busy, you know, in Asia. And so he's lost me in Europe. Paul, in effect, is writing this. How else would I get access to the entire military? God knows exactly where I'm supposed to be at this moment, so don't fret. I'm not fretting. The ones that are, that are responsible to protect and advise, Caesar, I've got access to him. Those who are responsible for justice and rehabilitation and civil order. God's given me a chance to preach the gospel to him. And so it's a perspective that Paul has that he's just saying, look, the gospel is sovereign. God is good. And, and, and most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So look, they've watched God working through my every situation. They see enemies becoming brothers. If you were a Christian in first century Rome, it was not a good place to be. And Paul got arrested. What are we going to do? Guess what Paul's going to do? He's going to go in there and convert jailers that one day might be your jailer. Okay? So God is in there with Paul making enemies into friends. Not just friends, but brothers in Christ. Paul's just saying, the gospel's working, man. The grace of God, the good news is that God loves us and cares for us. And he is never weary or tired uh, isaiah 40 27 through 31 okay i love this little section of scripture because it, it's the prophet isaiah who's writing to the folks that are uh you know um suffering some of the hardship of assyria that's going to come down and threaten the, the jewish people um why do you say O jacob and assert O israel my way is hidden from the lord and the justice do me escapes the notice of my god and then 28 through 31 just says god is not asleep he has not forgotten he is right there with you, okay? And so don't assert that God's forgotten your way. Paul's saying, don't you think for a second that God's forgotten me. Verse 15, some to be sure are preaching, he said, uh, even from envy and strife, but also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing them appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Okay? You know, some guys apparently, when Paul, who was the spiritual leader everywhere he went, was you know, slapped in the house of rest. And so it looks like some guys that insecurity kind of were elevating themselves. Well, it looks like, you know, it's Alexander Haig. Uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember who Haig is, right? What's Alexander right, That's exactly right. It was when Reagan was shot. Okay. What was Haig? Secretary of State? Yeah. Who apparently didn't know our Constitution. Because when Reagan was shot, okay, uh, in 1981, uh, Haig gets on the TV and he says, everything's under control, I'm in charge. Basically, he's just you know, ascended to the throne right there. Well, there's this little issue about the vice president being before you, and then we've got to work in the Speaker of the House, and there's a few more folks in line before you, Al. Okay? Uh, and he took a lot of heat for it. But he was just trying to step up in that moment. But there were people that were power-hungry and thirsty, apparently. Paul says there's no question that certain guys are doing two things. One, there was an insecurity even within the church. Just, have you ever seen that? <laughs> Lord. 
right? And, uh, and some guys were basically saying, well, look, God loves me more than Paul because I'm still free. Paul's in jail. And so I'm the true, I'm, I'm the true leader of the church in Rome. You when Paul's out. And I'm going to preach the gospel in a way you should listen to me. I'm, I'm God's servant. I'm God's problem. I'm the one sent forth from God. I mean, if God was really for Paul, would he be in jail? So let me preach. Listen to me. And Paul said, clearly there's some guys that are doing that, maybe even mocking Paul and his imprisonment. Paul said, I could care less. If that's what's going to make other people listen to that guy more, great. Throw me in jail. All I care about is that which brings about transformation into the world. And, and so he says, some proclaim out of selfish ambition. They want to be the guy. Rather than from pure motives, they can cause me distress in my imprisonment. But who cares? Don't fret about that. What then, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Now let me just stop right here. Ask me if I ever see some other guys whose ministries, I kind of go, that doesn't look healthy. You know, the way they're going about that and the way they're self-promoting and the way they do it, it doesn't look healthy to me. And I'm like, Lord, why would you want to keep, you know, I, 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 yeah, I have those thoughts. But you know what I do? I mean, I, I, I pray for them, and I purpose to, to not speak uh, poorly of them. I mean, assuming that they're doctrinally correct. And I just go, well, who cares why they're doing it? If they're doing it because they're, you know, as long as the gospel is preached, Lord, you're going to sort that out. You know, that's, that's all that really matters. Paul says, I, I don't care. I don't care if I get to be the mouth that leads that person to Christ. I just care if they get led to Christ. And I will rejoice if they're led to Christ. And he says it right here. Yes! I'm serious. I will rejoice. And that, Because they're really saying to Paul, are you serious? He goes, I am completely serious in verse 18. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. One way or the other. Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ. In other words, what he's saying is one way or the other, this is going to work out well for me. Because we're about to get the crescendo of what makes you ultimately courageous, peace-filled, set apart, and loving. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, living or dead. But that with all boldness, Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. That's it. That's it. And so what you've got to look at, and you just got to say, you know, because, because you know, this economic downturn that we're in, which I think is just the beginning I mean, the ice is melting at an alarming rate, and a few people have fallen through, but I think everybody's going into some cold waters here. All right? But who cares about the economy if the economy breaks people and makes them look for something other than material prosperity? Is it going to affect, the, you know, or is it going to move most of us into a house arrest situation more than a Lydia's house situation? Probably. But who cares? If that's what God, and God will use it all if we'll just let him and not just sit around and go, well, I had all this and now I don't have it anymore. It's not like it was and this and that. and all you. Just let's just be faithful. Preach the gospel. Know that God's at work. What, what Paul is saying right here is, look, through your prayers, and how do most of us pray when somebody's in jail? How do most of us pray when Brant gets cancer? Lord, heal him. All right, Paul's saying, look, he's going to do one of two things. He's going to deliver me through your prayers, because we all pray that cancer goes away. We all pray that the, the, the kidney comes. We all pray that um, the, the son is restored to health. Or through Christ's provision, which is the saying, either way, I'm, it's going to work out well for him. He's going to be out of jail. Um, my, my friend Matt Chandler, some of you guys know Matt. Matt uh, had a brain tumor, and, and 
um, is still in some radical therapy to try and deal with it. And we don't know how long he'll live. But uh, I love what Matt said uh, when he was uh, getting ready to go under. He just told, he said, look, man, I'm going to wake up to a groggy awareness of the goodness of God or everlasting glory. And the groggy awareness, man, has my wife and my kids and my church and the people I love and my ministry here, you know. But the other alternative, I mean, and I love that. And, you know, I'm praying for the groggy awareness. And so were thousands of folks around the country. But if I don't wake up, what do I wake up to? Everlasting glory. And so what he really, in effect, just said is, it's better for you that I remain. But I wish that I wouldn't wake up. Okay, now that, that, when people get, you know what, I've talked to nurses, I've talked to doctors, and they go, that dude, that's weird. Who lives like that? Okay, answer, people who are mature in Christ. Hey, if I live, I'm going to preach. If I live, it's for Christ. And if I die, all right, I'm moving on. So I'm going to be delivered either way. Paul said, it doesn't matter to me. When God's done with me, I'm done. And I've done what I should do. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. I, I, went, uh, I went skydiving one time, and um, I, was, I was in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And um, it, the first time I did it uh, was a static line jump, which means you're hooked up to a line and it kind of pulls your chute. Um, I later did that AFF, Advanced Free Fall, where you get to jump out from yourself, and it was really fun. But the static line jump, they put you at this time. It was back in the day where they threw you in a harness, and they threw all kinds of commands at you and basically described different things that could go wrong when you're skydiving. And the guy that I was doing it with was a Vietnam vet that had not jumped since he had jumped in the jungles of, of Nam and you know into some awful situations. And he was just trying to overcome. He was just kind of his post-war therapy to work through these things that just haunted him. And so he was going to go jump again. And so we're both in these harnesses side by side. And the guy says, okay, you got a streamer. Uh, or, okay, you got a horseshoe. Or, okay, you got, you know, different things, you know, where a horseshoe is where your chute deploys, but it wraps around a leg or wraps around an arm. And you're supposed to show that you'll know what to do if that happens at that deployment. And, um, and so the guy next to me just absolutely locked up. I mean, he went into a trance. And he didn't move. <laughs> And the guy goes, he got in his face, he goes, you're dead! Or that chute just, you know, didn't deploy at a full rate and you hit the ground with such impact, you're going to wish you were dead! He just, really kind of, you know, just got in his face. And the guy just kind of came out of a stance and he looked at me and said, that which does not kill me only makes me stronger. And, uh, you know, and I'm kind of hanging in that harness, but I'm kind of like trying to get away from him, like he's kind of spooky. And the guy kind of stepped back and the guy just after about, you know, he goes, Nietzsche. And he kind of shook his head, and then he goes, okay, let's go into the next exercise, kind of like that. And so the next one, I locked up, and I, I didn't do the right thing. He came at me the exact same way, and he goes, he goes you're, you're dead, or you're going to wish you would be. And I just go, to live is Christ, to die is gain, is what I said right then. <laughs> and he looked at me, he goes, oh man, you're one of those. I go, you bet I am. And a chance to share Christ with both those guys, and talk about why I felt that way. And we talked about Nietzsche, and we talked about all the stuff that that guy had been through. All right? But I mean, I really believe that. I want to believe that. And every now and then, God gives some folks an opportunity. You know, Brant, you're way ahead of me. Where are you at, man, this morning? Yeah, you're way ahead of me. You, you, you went through this. You, you've been in that jail cell. Okay? And so here's the thing, bro. You're, you've been set free. And so, so here's what I want to ask you guys. Most of us are not going to die today. I hope none of us die today. But here's my question. Is, is if we don't die today, what's supposed to happen? Christ is supposed to live in us. 
Okay? And, and, and so can you say that? If you live today, will it mean more sin? Will it mean more anger? Will it mean more indulgence? Will it mean more um, laziness? More fleeting investments? Or will it mean more fruitful labor? Will it mean more people hear the gospel? Will it mean more folks will be resourced in a way that only can be resourced if you deployed what God gave you to resource? If you live today, and you are, can you say, Christ will live today? If you live today, will your kids go, there is a loving and good parent authority in my life who teaches me wisdom and discernment and knowledge. You see, we can read Philippians one twenty one all day long and go, yeah, I want to be that guy. But what will be? For you to live today, will it be Christ? All right, quickly, for 22, but if I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruit for labor for me. I don't know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed in both directions, having the desire to part and be with Christ. But that's very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And frankly, Paul would say, that's enough for me. This is my Father's will. And the more I endure, suffer, hardship for you, because when you think about where Paul was you know, in jail in that day, um, you know, it wasn't like they had cable and air conditioning and three squares and a little yard time. That was not jail. It was cold. It was dark. You were locked down. The food wasn't good, even if you were free, and much less in jail. And Paul says, you know what? The longer I'm in jail, I'm just, it's more time to write letters so that in 2010, Todd Wagner might be encouraged to love his family better. I'd much rather die and get out of this cold, clammy, you know, oppressive, misjudged world and go where Christ will remind me that I wasn't crazy. But if I'm going to hang around while I'm here, it's going to be for Christ. That jailer, he's going to hear about Jesus. He's going to hear me sing hymns at night until they gag me. And I'm going to write letters to people to remind them of things that are true. And so, you know what? It's more necessary for your sake that he said that I would hang around and that I would survive. And so let's get to the end of this chapter. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you for all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul said, I have a sense that this one's not going to end this time this way. He knew a little bit later that he wasn't going to get out of that other jail situation, but this time he felt like he was going to get out. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now watch this. So he just basically said, look, the gospel, if you'll just trust Romans 8, that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, won't he freely take care of you in every other circumstance? Just be courageous. Be joy-filled. It's okay. All right? And now, now what he's going to do is, after reminding you of that, he's going to just admonish us this way. He goes, so please, please, stay at it. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, Lydia, don't get caught up in materialism. Don't become prideful because, you know, you've been more resourced than others. Keep going. Keep being who Jesus wants you to be. Slave girl, don't be bitter. Don't be angry. Jailer, you know. Don't, don't slide back out of fear and um, how to advance in this world. Just keep loving people. Even if it costs you promotion because you're going to be a gentle and kind and discerning jailer. Keep being that. Don't worry about what your buddies say that you become soft. Just conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. What a great thing to say to somebody. You've got to ask yourself, is the way I just did that worthy of the gospel? And when you're out there, 
you know, and one of the great things to do is, is when you just got through living through a moment, go, okay, if right now I picked up my Bible and preached and told these people about the glories of God and the excellencies of Christ, would they want to hear it from me in this moment? Or, or did I not just live in a manner worthy of telling them about transformation or redemption? And he says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, the mind of Christ, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That word striving is a word that means, um, it's, it's the word, um, remember when we did the conflict series, I talked about one of the words for conflict is athleo. Okay? The word there, striving, is sin athleo. So it means with conflict. What it talks about when you strive, it means that you get in there and you compete together for the sake of the gospel. What Paul's trying to say here is you guys lock arms and get after it. Spurring each other on the love and good deeds. You do war with the world together. And you strive together for this stuff, for love, for holiness, and for courage. In no way be ashamed. I love this. This is great. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them but a salvation for you, and that too from God. I, I, I go through these scenarios a lot of what would I do if somebody came up to me, you know, let's just say the, the, the Islamic terrorists. And I'll be in places, I'm going to Darfur next November, all right? White people, American white people, as the, 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 the northern Muslim entity moves down, there are places all around there that they just as soon cut a white man's head off. There's two guys just nerd arrested in New Jersey, two Muslim guys, that, that their goal was to, was to behead an American and celebrate that, okay? And I always thought to myself, what would I do if I'm in that moment? I'm that American that's about to be headed so that guy can you know, chase his little fantasy, you know? I hope what I would say is, hey man, before you behead me, take my shirt off so that you'll have a shirt that's not soaked in blood and so that you can be worn. And Father, forgive him for he doesn't know what he's doing. That I would say what Stephen said? Okay? Because what I really think about doing is, okay, what would Jack Bauer do? How could he break the leg off this chair? All right? Decapitate him and hold his head up to his other guy and go, you're next. That's what I... Okay? That's, that's what my flesh always... That's the first scenario. I always look for my bullwhip first, like, oh, Indiana Jones, before I look for my Bible. Okay? And so once I just go, okay, self-control, peace, gentleness, goodness. Okay? Because look, here's the deal. If, God, if, if I'm not supposed to be beheaded... They can't behead me. Pilate wasn't sovereign, and neither is that Islamic terrorist. Okay, so what I would do is I would just, the best I could, just say, dude, look, man, before you kill me, you need to know something. You're betting everything that Allah's right, and that beheading, you know, citizens of the great Satan is what's going to get you into eternity. Before you do it, let me just tell you, this great Satan's going to tell you he loves you. Because the God, not Allah, not this impetuous, moody God that you hope you have to appease through works like murder... He loves you. He loves you enough to let his own son be murdered so that you and your lack of righteousness become righteousness in his sake. And so there's a lot that's not right with my country. I'm not here to get you to love America. I'm here to get you to know that God loves you. And so if I'm the guy that you put a sack over his head and cut it off, go for it, man. Because all you're going to do is send me to glory. And one of us is right and one of us is wrong. But I love you. Take my shirt off so you can wear it. Maybe give it to a kid. Father, forgive me. He doesn't know what he does, man. And you go ahead and do what you're going to do. And before you do it, let me pray for you. Now I just go, wow. That'd be something.
All right? That would be, that'd be different. And I go, because here's, here's the deal. That dude, he's not in control. God is. And that'll give you the courage to do it. And so you're not looking around figuring out if you can Jack Bauer your way out of that moment. You can Jesus Christ your way out of that moment. May it be. Because you know something they don't know. All right, Matthew 10, 28. Is, is my, just write down Matthew 10, 28 if you're taking notes right there. And it just says this. Do not fear those who can destroy the body, but you fear the one who can destroy both body and cast the soul into hell forever. You fear that one. That's what Paul's saying. You know what happens when somebody's about to kill you and you're not sweating it? Like, what's this dude know that I don't know? Okay? You know what it is when the world says we've got to go out and give ourselves away to sex, drugs, and rock and roll and materialism, and you don't? You know, I, I have a lot of friends when I was in college... And, um, and even today in the community, when I don't do the things that they do, they don't like me. They speak poorly of me. They don't like to be around me. And, and, and they, part of it is they're judged. They feel judged by what I'm not doing. And even if I don't want to judge them for what they're not doing, they just go, he acts like he knows something we don't know. And they speak poorly of you, but you keep loving them. You keep loving them. Okay, and the truth is you do know something they don't know. Man, I don't need to go do what you're going to do. You know, how come every other girl here at school, you know, has got to give herself away to get guys' affections and dress this way to attract attention, but you don't. What do you know that I don't know? Well, you know real knowledge. You've got all discernment. That's what you know. Okay? And so, um, when you live a certain way, you don't fear the way people fear. For you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. And now here to be in me. What's the conflict? That I, I, I'll be here for your sake, but if it's, if it's, I'd love to go home. But I'm, while I'm here, going to be faithful. And you are experiencing that, Lydia. You're experiencing that church at Philippi. I know you'd rather go home, but you're not home yet. And so verses 1 and 2, and then we'll end here. Therefore, chapter 2, in light of what I've just taught you, if there's any encouragement in Christ, in other words, if you're mutually encouraged with me, if there's any consolation of love, in other words, if we really love each other, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. The way the pagans would say this is if we are from the same village. Literally, that translation is if we drank from the same well. Okay? You know what I mean? We, we, we drink from the same spring. You and I get our life from the same place. If it's true that you and I get our life from the same place, if we're in the same village, we don't war. We kill other villages. Okay? And what Paul's saying is if we are drinking, Second Corinthians um, Let's see, what is it? 2 Corinthians, 13, no, 2 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, we all drink from the same fountain, which is Jesus Christ. There is a shining light in my presence. That's what God wants. That's who we are. That's what we're pressing on towards. And I'm confident that as we mutually encourage each other, we'll get there. All right, Lord, thank you for these friends. Thank you that this is my Philippi. This is the church that I love. These are the friends that spur me on. These are the friends that, that have been generous. These are the friends that have, I, I guess, I don't know if I can say suffered with me. These are the friends that maybe right now go, this world is not my home. And Lord, we're ready, man. We, we, we come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come on earth today as it is in heaven. We want this to be the day when you move forward. Because by grace we've been reconciled to you. But Lord, it's better, we believe, for this world that we remain. And so while we remain today, may we not be selfish, indulgent, angry, lustful, self-absorbed. May we be filled with the fruit of the righteousness of Christ. 
Maybe before we speak, we ask, what would the Spirit of God want me to do? Maybe before we spend, ask, what's the Spirit of God want me to do? May we, before we dress, go, how's the Spirit of God want me to dress? May we, before we finish our sentence, Lord, may we, Father, live today. You've given us life. We thank you that when life expires, that Christ's provision is going to give for us unspeakable glory. And so in our groggy awareness now, I pray you let us live. Sanctified, holy lives, filled and informed by love, that are nothing less than courageous. For Christ's glory, our good, and the welfare of this world that you love and died for, we pray. Amen.